Good morning, Smithfield. Good morning. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Who's excited to be in church today? Who's excited to hear about Jesus? All right. Who's excited to see more of who Jesus is? Because he never gets old, and you're not going to plumb the depths of gospel riches this side of heaven. There's so much more, and the best is yet to come. Amen? Amen. Let's come before the Lord and pray together. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, as we come before you now. We pray that your spirit would be upon this time, that you would be upon us as a people, because we want to hear from you, Lord. This is not just about getting more information. This is about the life-transforming word of God. This is about meeting you. This is about beholding you. This is about inviting you to come in and speak to us and move in our hearts and perform surgery, Lord, where we need it. Father, would you grant us to have conviction, Lord, where we need conviction? And would you build us up where we're despairing? And would you, would you put a fire in our hearts for the gospel? And Lord, I pray that you would help me to do justice to this chapter of the gospel of John. It's so magnificent and glorious. And I just pray, Lord, that it would just radiate into the hearts of your people. I pray, God, that you would bring life into any hearts that are dead or cold. And God, I pray that the Spirit would do a hundred different things in this room, Lord, in ways that are unanticipated because you're at work. And when you speak, Lord, it transforms hearts. And when you speak, it opens eyes. And when you speak, the dead are raised. And so we just thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. And we want to get into your word now. And we pray, Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. So Clarissa and I and the family, last weekend we went to a wedding in Franklin, right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, my cousin was getting, wedding, getting uh, married, and um, we were super excited. This is like the first time that my, my kids have like, really uh, went to a wedding where they were a little bit more dialed into it and they were excited. It's like a three and a half hour trip and we get there and it's this beautiful like um, farm but there's a garden and uh, like a chapel area where they're going to have the reception and there's flowers everywhere. There's just everything you could think of. The um, bride and groom have thought through this service so well. There was even a Polaroid camera where you could take Polaroids, right? Throw back to the, the 80s. Um, there were rose petals just like uh, all the way up the aisle. And um, every kind of flower, every kind of instrument, every kind of, of um, preparation was made to the fine details, right? And when you enter into kind of like the world of a wedding, you're expecting joy, you're expecting celebration, you're expecting your soul to have kind of some music flowing through it, right? That's what weddings remind us of. And uh, my kids, as we were coming home, they're like, 
that was the best day ever. You know, like they just had a blast. And we were entering into somebody else's joy, right? Two people were being joined together in marriage, a husband and a wife forever. The old families, right, um, were being left and a new family was being forged in this marriage. And it was sweet and beautiful. And when we come to John chapter 2, we're entering into that kind of reality. We're entering into a wedding that Jesus actually attends. Could you imagine that, right? Jesus attending your wedding. That's what happened, right? So Jesus is invited to a wedding, and we're going to see the first sign miracle that he does in the Gospel of John. And this, this wedding is supposed to help us see something about Jesus, because it's not an accident he's here. It's not an accident that the very first place Jesus publicly performs this miracle, although it really was privately known because not everybody knew who had turned the water into wine, right? It was just the servants, as we'll read, and the disciples who knew at this point. But there's something special going on in this wedding. So I want us to enter in chapter 2 and verse 1, and let's read and kind of step into this wedding at Cana in Galilee. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Some of you are stumbling at that right now. We'll get into it. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people have drunk freely, then the poor one or sorry, everyone serves the good wine first, and then when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. We just put a VBS sign up over on the lawn across from our best over there, right? What do signs do? They tell you something. They point to something. Signs are meant to point to something. And verse 11 is going to clue you in at what this account is all about because there's something profound happening. This was the first of his signs. 
Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And he did what? He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So all through the Gospel of John, there's going to be seven sign miracles. So the, the feeding of 5,000 with a bread, bread and loaves, you know, a couple loaves of bread and some fish, that is a sign miracle that's meant to tell us something about Jesus, right? The resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, sign miracle, meant to tell us something about Jesus. He conquers death. And here we come to a place where we have the first miracle recorded in the Gospel of John. And it's meant to introduce us to the identity of Jesus. And it's meant to be looked through to see glory in Jesus. Jesus is revealing something about himself as king and as the son of God in this passage. And we can, we can sort of gloss over it and be amazed at the power of turning water to wine. But there's so much more going on in this text. There's so many little details that John wants us to kind of pull our attention to and our gaze to. Just like all of the details that my cousin laid out in this wedding. There were so many little intricate things that were done. Spoken word, you know, it was done here. A special song that was done there. Or uh, a reciting of vows, right? There's all these little details that communicate meaning. And John is going to be like a laser trying to get us before this sign so that we can see it and look through it and see who Jesus really is. And it's the whole thing he's after in this gospel is he wants us to see them so that it might produce faith, right? Verse 11 says, and his disciples believed in him. That's the whole point of the gospel. John 20 and verse 30 and 31, John reminds us and says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So he's just like up front with you. Like, I am all about calling you to faith in Jesus. My whole, my whole goal, my whole aim is that you would see the signs, behold who Jesus is, and then follow him and believe him. And watch your life change. Because it's by believing that we have life in his name. So make no mistake, John is after your heart today. And even as believers... He's after your heart. He wants you to go deeper. He wants you to trust the Lord through difficult things. He wants you to have a vision of Jesus that carries you through. He wants you to have a vision of Jesus that you see just who he really is. And it sustains you in the present all the way to glory. And all through the scriptures, weddings are a picture of heaven and they're a picture of our relationship to Christ as the church, right? The church is the bride of Christ. 
and Jesus is the groom, and Jesus lays down his life to save his bride, and then ushers his bride into a messianic banquet in heaven, and, and, and heaven is pictured as this this banquet, right? This reception that's a never-ending reception with every glorious blessing and the wine is flowing and the joy is, is never-ending and there is no sorrow, there is no suffering, there is no pain. It's eternal bliss. That's how Jesus pictures in Scripture weddings. And so when he shows up at this wedding... It's a big deal because he's indicating something about who he is. And he was probably invited by somebody related to the disciples, but he surely knew the family at this wedding in some way, shape, or form. Nathaniel, remember last time, Nathaniel was actually from Cana. So it could have been that Jesus was invited to this wedding through some kind of relationship with Nathaniel, which was one of the disciples he called. And Nathaniel, you remember that Nathaniel hears about Jesus from Philip and says to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, please. And then he meets Jesus and Jesus says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel marvels and says, you must be the son of God. You, you, you're the king of Israel. You're the son of God. And Jesus is like, do you believe just because I told you that? I saw you under the fig tree. You ain't seen nothing yet. You're going to see greater things than these. And boom, he's at a wedding now in Cana. And he's about to see one of these greater things. So let's look at a couple things from this passage and just get some help. And each thing is going to kind of unfold a little bit about who Jesus is so that we can be hit with it afresh and get some help, right? Jesus is introducing himself as the king of the universe, the savior of the world, and he's walking into a wedding right now. Let's look at it in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was, also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So they're in a wedding, and weddings in ancient Palestine would last probably about a week the wedding, the banquet, all of that. So you would have visitors and you would have a celebration for an entire week. And if the wine ran out or if something went wrong, imagine your wedding if something really serious went wrong, right? And you, you, you don't have meals for like 20 of the people you invited. That would be bad news, right? It would look really bad. And in ancient Palestine, if the wine ran out, which was a symbol of joy, a symbol of blessing, a symbol of celebration. You don't have no more wine. That's like, that's going to crush a wedding. And in some cases, the groom was liable and his family was liable and could have a lawsuit drawn up against him. So this was a very serious thing. So Mary being the mother of Jesus and 
probably knew the, the folks who, who were being married, is concerned. And she rightly is just running towards this situation, trying to help. Like, what can we do? And Jesus has been so dependable, right? You've got Jesus as your son. He's the most dependable son there is, right? There's nobody like him. His brothers are probably upset. It's like, she always goes to Jesus. What's up with that? But what's happening is Mary is approaching Jesus and saying, the wine has run out. And she's approaching Jesus in this familial sort of way and saying, son, do something here. You know, the wine's run out. Can you do something? Can you feel that problem? It's like, there's going to be a social embarrassment here. Jesus is here. He's my son. He'll take care of it. And this idea of the wine running out is, is, is probably suggest, suggestive of the old covenant sort of fading away. And the reality that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And there's a sense in which this old way of Judaism and all of the, 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 the things that were pointing to Jesus are giving way to King Jesus who has come. So the wine running out is very significant because that's the fount of blessing in, in, in the wedding. And Jesus is going to come onto the scene and Mary is approaching in a familial sort of way. So that's the problem. But then we learn something here about God's timing. Mary put her finger on a problem. But verse 4 shows us that there's something she still needs to learn about God's timing. She doesn't have a cross-centered view of history. She doesn't have a, 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 the father's perspective on what's going on with Jesus, her son. And so she's going to get corrected. Verse 4 says, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now that's supposed to catch your attention. Perhaps some of the ladies in here are, are feeling like a little bit like, my son comes and talks to me like that. <laughs> going to get something upside the back of the head, right? But this is Jesus. And there's one other place in the gospel where he addresses her this way. And he says, from the cross, hanging on the cross, he says, woman, and he looks to John and says, this is your son. And he's taking care of his mom. And he's saying, John, she's your mom now. I need you to take care of her. And so there's a sense in which this address is not derogatory. It's not meant to, to be disrespectful. But it also is a little bit distance, right? It's a brusque sort of response to Mary. We don't expect it. And then it's followed, right? In verse 4, it's followed with this, what does this have to do with me? And the actual sort of Greek is like, what is this to me? And what is this to you? Like, what, what, what is this to us? My hour has not yet come. It's a strange sort of 
response from Jesus. It's one we don't really expect, but we have to, we have to start reading this gospel holistically, right? This idea that my hour has not yet come is all through this gospel. Jesus is talking about his hour. There's an hour that's coming. It's not yet come right now. And so that's where Mary is missing something. But Jesus is going to kind of unfold what this hour is. It's the hour where he's going to be glorified. It's the hour where he's going to the cross. It's the hour where he's going to redeem a people. It's the hour where his blood will be shed for the forgiveness of many, all who will believe. But this hour is not yet come. Jesus is not yet going to reveal himself publicly in this way. The cross is still three years in the future. So let's look at a few passages here. Or, or I'm, I'm just going to read them to you. But John 7.30, the Gospel of John says, they were seeking to arrest Jesus but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It's as if nobody can touch Jesus before his hour comes. They want to arrest him. There's all sorts of circumstantial sort of reasons that they want to get the Pharisees and the religious authorities want to get Jesus out of here. He's got a whole following and they're losing authority. John 8.20 says something similar. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And all through the gospel, you see this drumbeat walking all the way towards chapter 12. And then something changes. John 12, 23, Jesus answers and says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus there links my hour has come with his death. John wants us to pay very close attention to his gospel because he's saying something about what Jesus' mission is. And then finally, you see another time uh, right before the foot washing, right, of the disciples. Jesus is about to wash their feet. And the gospel writer says in John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, which is all about Right, sacrificing the Passover lamb, which commemorates the Passover when, 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 when the lamb was, was sacrificed and the blood was applied to the doorposts of the Israelites and the angel of death would pass over that Passover lamb. They're about to celebrate that. And it says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world. He loved them to the end. He loved them all the way to the cross. And then he loved them on the cross. And then he was buried. And he raised up out of the grave. Glorified. So Mary is. Not realizing that there's a divine 
timetable going on here. There's a divine prerogative. There's something about who Jesus is that can't be fully revealed and fully manifested. And yet, Jesus is still going to reveal a glimpse of it to his disciples and the servants for them to see so that this is the first, the beginning of signs so that we get start getting a picture of Jesus and who he is. My hour has not yet come. That's what Mary needed to know. She needed to know that Jesus was sensitive to the Father's will. She was, he was sensitive to the Father's timing. And Mary had overstepped. She took a familial prerogative instead of a divine prerogative. And she approached Jesus assuming instead of kneeling before him as disciples. So Mary's learning something in this exchange that's pretty profound. She's learning that Jesus is headed to the cross and that Jesus is on a heavenly timed schedule, not her own. I always think of J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is introduced and Gandalf kind of rides in and meets Frodo, Baggins, the hobbit, who's the main character of the story. And Frodo says, you're late, Gandalf. And he says, a wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he means to. A wizard is never late. He could have said, my hour has not yet come, right? Jesus is teaching Mary to submit to the will of God. And we all have that struggle sometimes. Why is it happening this way? Why is this timetable the way it is? I want my timetable, right? But, but what, what Jesus is doing is saying, trust me as a disciple. Trust me, Mary. I've got plans here. I've got purposes. I've got a heavenly disclosed chronology that's going on. And every detail has been superintended by the Lord. And he's at the wedding precisely when he should be. And he's going to reveal something of himself. But he's going to do it his way. And Mary is giving way to that reality. And notice it, it's right there in verse 5. How does she respond? She doesn't give him a backhand, right? <laughs> she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And Mary is submitting to the will of Jesus. And she's pointing us to what discipleship looks like. Is that glorious? Like Jesus, Jesus the what would Jesus do? Like, that's right there, right? That's, that's what Mary is saying. Do whatever he tells you to do. Live like Jesus and obey his commands. That's discipleship. And Mary is heading in with presumption, but she's ending kneeling before the Lord and telling everybody around her, just listen and learn what the Lord is doing. That's powerful. Next, we begin to see some glory unfolding 
in the next four verses or so. Look at this with me, verse 6. We're going to get a glimpse of glory here. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and they did not know where it came from, though the servants knew. Did you see that detail? Though the servants knew who had drawn the water, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now? What's happening here? Like, why... Does this account unfold this way? You've got six water pots that were meant for the Jewish rites of purification. They were for bathing and for uncleanliness. It was the Jewish attempt at like dealing with the uncleanliness of sin, right? It was the Jewish attempt to sort of clean themselves, right? It's to wash. Like, I've got to deal with my heart. I've got to deal with something. And there's these rites Right? That they would begin to wash and purify themselves for God. And Jesus takes those. He could have took a bunch of serving vessels. But he takes those vessels and he says, I'm going to use those. And I'm going to make wine come out of it as you're serving the guests. That's what's going to happen. And the wine is never going to run out. And it says in the text that they filled them up to the brim. So there's this picture, like, this, think glory. There's this picture of abundant provision and absolute impeccable quality, right, of this wine. It's the best stuff. You don't serve the best stuff last, you serve it first. But the best is yet to come. When it comes to Jesus, it just keeps getting better. Jesus is better than anything we can manufacture on our own. Maybe you've been trying to like eke through. I'm just trying to eke through life. I'm trying to get things done. I'm trying to kind of work it out. I'm trying to kind of do it and white knuckle it on my own. And all I've got is these six water jars. And I need the new wine to come in. That's what Jesus is telling them. He's saying, listen, the old water of Judaism is about to give way to the new wine of Christianity. The old water of sacrificing a bunch of bulls and goats to try to get right with God is giving way to the one sacrifice that's coming when his hour has come and Jesus is slain on a cross to provide his blood as a ransom. And the New Testament picks that up in another feast and commemorates that as the Last Supper. And there's wine given at that supper. And it's the symbol of his blood being poured out and shed for the remission of sins. Any who will believe. And you enter in through him and you enter into a banquet that will never end. This wedding is a picture of the redemption that Jesus provides. Never-ending provision. Never-ending joy. Never-ending 
celebration. The best is yet to come for the people of God. And Mary is just like staggered by this. And we're meant to be staggered too. We're meant to awaken to something here. All through Scripture, you have this idea of wine and blessing going together. And wine flowing and vineyards flowing as a picture of the messianic age when the Savior would come, when Jesus would actually come into the world. Think about how powerful that is. Like, when the wine flows, redemption has come. And that's why the master of the ceremonies at the wedding sees it, points it out to us. Says, this is not right. Like, normally, we don't do this. Why save the best for last? Because we're seeing the superior nature of what Jesus provides. Listen, the wine is going to run out in your life. Your wine, your water, you'll thirst again. Your wine will run out. Your wedding banquets, right? They're over eventually. The honeymoon ends. Jesus provides something where the last is better than the first. And and it never ends. That's what you're meant to catch when you look at this. And is it any wonder that the end of the book of Revelation depicts the church pleading with all to come to Christ and drink freely? Listen to it. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price take it. There's just an incredible blessing for the people of God. It begins when you get saved, right? That's the picture we see in 2 Corinthians 5.17. The old has passed away and the new has come. If any of you are in Christ Jesus, you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The next several chapters in John's gospel is going to just picture that in all sorts of ways. Old water, new wine. Jesus is going to go into the temple and he's going to cleanse the temple and then he's going to point to himself and say, you're going to destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up because he's the new temple. The old temple is gone. Jesus is the new temple. You go into chapter three and you meet Nicodemus. And what does Jesus say to him? You, you, you can't get into heaven without a new heart. You need a new heart. What, what does he say to the woman at the well, in th- the Samaritan woman? You actually, you're going to drink water and you're going to get thirsty again. You need living water. You need new living water that I provide. I provide new. And the new you desperately need. God just wants, he wants to break into your life with new saving power. He wants to break into your life if you're a believer. And he wants to, he wants to encourage you like the best is yet to come. And this sign is meant to disclose 
the glory of God to you in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what verse 11 says, right? This is the first of signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Jesus, is in the, he's not a sidewalk magician, right? He's not just performing to show you a little power, a little razzle-dazzle. He's showing you who he is. He's showing you glory. He's showing you power. He's showing you identity. I was thinking about this one. I was watching the, the movie Secretariat, and Secretariat wins the Triple Crown. You know, the whole movie is kind of building up to this scene where he's going to run that race. And I love the way it's depicted in this movie because you have the Secretariat and it's kind of like trailing a little bit in the race for, for a moment. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of like panning back from the race to the caretaker of the Secretariat. And you're getting kind of his view of what's happening. And, and, and all of a sudden, you just see this horse just take off with like this otherworldly power. And he's just boom, 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 boom. And he's going through and he's passing one horse after another horse after another horse after another horse. And pretty soon, there's nobody around, right? It's just this, this horse way out in front. And all of a sudden, you see it pan around to this caretaker. And he's just like... He's got his mouth open and he's like, glory, 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 hallelujah. Because this horse did something that no other horse could do. And he's staggered by the glory of this magnificent animal. It's just nothing compared to the glory we see in Jesus. Like, you're meant to say that about Jesus. When you read this passage, you're meant to be like, glory, 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 because he's glorious. He's like, he's unsurpassable. He's unmatched. He's one of a kind. He's the king who made all things. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's the light of the world. He's the lamb of God. He's the son of God. He's God with us. And he's telling you in this text, I provide the saving blessing that never runs out. In my death has purchased a way for you to get into the messianic wedding banquet. You can be saved. You can experience life. You can experience the kind of joy that never runs out. It's like he's saying, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? I'm glorious. And you don't want to miss the glory. You want to be with the caretaker looking in and saying, that's glorious. And as you do that, verse 11 reminds you that produces faith. And the disciples believed in him. One preacher famously said that salvation is in the pronouns. Salvation is in the pronouns. And I thought, that's a little odd. But what he meant was, it's easy to say, right, that Jesus is the king, that Jesus came to die for sinners, that Jesus rose up out of the grave, that Jesus is the Lord of history, that Jesus turned water into wine, that Jesus fed 5,000 with a loaf of bread, that Jesus rose the dead. But it's a whole nother thing to say 
He's my Lord and my God, and I'm trusting in him. It's in the pronouns. You can't be saved by somebody else's faith. You have to believe. And ultimately, we're seeing a picture in this gospel of a summoning to come to Jesus. And the, 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 the servants get it. The disciples get it. And Mary surely gets it. And I'm reminded of this whole idea at the end of the Gospel of John, you see Doubting Thomas, right? And he says, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He's the cynic. And eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them and the doors were locked. And Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand out and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And what does Thomas say? He answers and he says, my Lord and my God. And it gets real for Thomas for the very first time. Have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Thomas just, he gets pronouns up in there. My Lord and my God. And he kneels before him in total submission. He's like, Mary, do whatever he tells you. Right? I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to come out from this place where, where I'm kind of relating in presumption like, like I'm going to mom Jesus and now I'm going to submit to Jesus in faith and I'm going to do whatever He says. Right? We can't relate to Jesus through somebody else. You have to put your trust in Him personally and totally. And that is what discipleship is all about. And that's what this gospel is all about. It's laying before you King Jesus to grip your heart. So I'm going to close this way. We've seen, right, that Jesus is glorious. We've seen that Jesus has a divine prerogative and is, has a divine agenda. And we've seen a picture of real discipleship and real faith. And we've seen that the old is giving way to the new. And I just think we, we, need, we need a picture to kind of make it real for us. A couple days ago, I was kind of blindly reaching into my book bag, my computer bag. And I stabbed myself with a mechanical pencil. And the tip of the pencil broke off into my pinky. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, it was so bad. This tip was just like, and it was wedged in between my cuticle and my pinky. 
And I could not get it out. It was stinging like all get out, right? Like, I'm just like, oh. And so I try everything. I'm like tweezing it. I'm trying to dig at it with like a pin. And I'm doing all this stuff to try to get this thing out. And I'm just like disintegrating the stuff that I can get and further pushing it into my finger. And it's just annoying me. And I can't sleep, you know. I'm taking Tylenol to try to sleep. And, 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 and Clarissa's like, why don't you just go to the doctor and get it taken out? And I'm like, I would do that, but I just want to mangle my finger first. So, <laughs> but but at, in the morning, I'm like, all right, let's do it. I'm fine. I'm, I'm done trying to do it on my own. And so I go to the doctor, and, you know, we get in there, and he numbs it up and just, like, gouges my finger and grabs it out. And there's blood kind of everywhere, and it's just, but he, he got it out. He made sure it was all out, and it was good to go. And I was just thinking about that for a little bit. And that's such a picture of our hearts. We've got something infecting our lives. We've got something stuck in us. It's a sin nature. It's the reason we do messed up stuff. Jesus said you love darkness rather than the light, and you're running from God, and, 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 and it's because you love your evil deeds. And it's because you got a broken heart. It's because sin has infected your life and there's something wrong with it. And we're trying to gouge it out all day long. And we're trying to gouge it out through interpersonal relationships. We're trying to gouge it out by trying to grab something else. And we're trying to gouge it out and we can't get it out and we can't get it out. And we're frustrated. And King Jesus comes in and says, why don't you let me get that? Why don't you let me cut that out? I'm the divine physician. I'm the one who came. I'm the one who ushers in the messianic wine. I'm the one who provides what you need. And you just need to believe in me. And turn away from your self-effort. Stop trying to dig it out. And let the one who went to a cross to deal with it redeem you. That's what this is about. That's what this story is meant to tell you. Let's come before the Lord and ask him to work in our hearts. And maybe you need to make a fresh commitment today to Jesus. Maybe you need to get real and stop trying to dig it out yourself and let him do it for you. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for the sinners. The sinless Right? Lamb of God paid for your sins so that you could have life in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus is so much better than anything else. Lord, the best is yet to come for the people of God. We can trust the Lord's timetable in all things, Lord, submitting to the timetable of King Jesus is a good thing. And we thank you, Lord God, that he can cut out the sin in our life. He can deal with the infection of our souls. And I just pray, Father, wherever we're at, Lord, move on us during this song. Lord, move on us. as Help us respond to this message. Help us to lay hold of it and to be helped by it and to be gripped by it. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us as the worship team comes up, Lord, that, that you would be speaking to our hearts. And if we have to really start living out the pronoun 
reality of the Christian life. That it's not somebody else's faith that saves us. It's our faith in Christ alone. And that we are called upon by King Jesus to turn our lives over to him and trust that he can do it. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.